0: Well, our feelings and emotions are often so volatile, aren't they? They're all over the map regardless of what is happening or what day it is. It seems like our emotions and our feelings are all over the map and we don't really know what to do with them half the time. Have you ever heard someone being described or being called a stoic? You know, a stoic where nothing seems to strike them. Nothing seems to take their breath away. Nothing seems to alarm them. They they just keep on doing what they've always done. Stoicism is a branch of philosophy dating back to 300 BC, where they were, uh, people were so consumed with the idea that everything is already on its path. So there's no real reason to consume yourself with the emotions or the things of the world, and you can be more efficient if, in the midst of gaining knowledge, you, you just keep moving forward. So you don't get caught up in the fortunes of the world or the pleasures or even the pains of the world. You just Keep your chest out, your shoulders back, your face forward, and you keep marching onward no matter what. And it's sad when this happens because it traps the understanding of what God has given us. Good emotions to give Him praise with or to give love to other people with or to worship Him with. What God gives us through emotion and understanding, we we far too often try to trap it in particular ways. God gives us life. God gives us the world. God gives us people. Our response ought to be to do well with those things and primarily to worship Him exclusively with them. And the Bible doesn't dismiss what we go through. It doesn't discount that you are an emotional person and you have emotions when things are sad. It's not wrong to feel sad. When things are great, it's not wrong to feel happy. It's not wrong to laugh or to smile or to weep with those who weep when it's time to weep. Our response ought to be to do well with what God has given us. If you read your Bible and throughout the Bible, you'll find people with ranges of all kinds of emotion. You'll see people who have good emotion, or sometimes you'll see people who obviously have bad emotion, or angry emotion, or hostile emotion. And Jesus actually exhibits for us the correct way to to use these. actually instructs us how we not only should believe, but how we ought to act and how we ought to behave. In his Sermon on the Mountainside, Jesus was speaking to his followers, and people put aside their lives in order to follow them. So in this great narrative called the Sermon on the Mount, as you might have heard it called in other places, this Sermon on the Mount is actually Jesus preaching to his own disciples and to people who follow him. He's exhibiting how we ought to show godly anger or godly love or in our text's particular passage, godly mourning. Not mourning as in daytime, but mourning as in pain and agony of the soul. People who put aside their lives are now longing for Jesus to teach them how they ought to live. And so in the second thing that he says that you ought to act like if you're a Christian, he says that Christians mourn. So a follower of Jesus, a Christian, is happy, he says, or blessed or flourishing in their lives if they mourn. Now, the question is, what does this mean? What does mourning mean? So this morning, I want to address the goodness of mourning, the sweetness of mourning, how mourning appropriately actually gives us great hope, which is why he says that we can have happy lives if we're mourning people. So first, I want to ask you, what is mourning? And, and answer it from the scriptures, the meaning of mourning, if you're using an outline. Now, our society tries to shun mourning, right? Even there's a modern movement to make funerals, not a place where you cry, but a place where you should be happy all the time. We just don't like, we get uncomfortable when we think about mourning something. And so what does the Bible say about mourning? Why is spiritual mourning generally abstract in so many groups of Christians? Or why is it so hard often for Christians to do appropriately? I think there are two main reasons why Christians aren't very good at scriptural mourning or biblical mourning. I think the first one is just Christians distrusting the power of the gospel where there's this huge tug on the flesh saying that the way to win people to Christ is to act like everything's fine. Everything's okay. The world is harmful and the world is bad or your friendships are falling apart, but just come to church with us and everything's fine. Everything's good. People are at the door shaking your hands, smiling. How was your week? It was great. I mean, my dog died, but it's great. My dog didn't die. I don't know why I use that example, but And we often ask people, how's your life? And we instinctively say, it's amazing, it's great, I had a great week. How do we say that we're sad or what does it look like to mourn? This endeavor to put on something that will cause you to live a certain way is actually unlike the gospel altogether. Because what the gospel does is it actually starts at the heart and it works its way out from the heart to the actions that you and I have. The gospel is God loving his people so much that he actually condescended from heaven in order to save his people. His love was a forward acting work of grace. Knowing that they couldn't come to him on their own, he went to them. Not on their own merit or their own ability, but Jesus shows up in our lives. Not because we are anything, but actually instead of us being as sinful as we were, Jesus is still there and he's still coming forward. We needed God to save us. And to act like we don't always need him is just distrusting the good news of God altogether. So for Christians, it's often hard to say or to, uh, it's hard to answer, how's it going? Because often we distrust the gospel, forgetting that we never had it all together. And that's exactly where the Lord loved us. Secondly, there's a misunderstanding of sin. That's why it's hard to mourn, I think, because there's a misunderstanding of sin, and that's really what our text is getting at this morning. Too often we lack a deep sense of sin's tragedy, the assault that sin takes against our God. Far too often you and I might apologize to each other by saying, hey, I'm sorry if that hurt you, overlooking the fact that I wouldn't apologize unless it hurt you. But in many ways, when we think of the seriousness of sin, It's not just that I made an oopsie-daisy or I could have done better. It's that what sin is, is an assault or an affront against the holy God of the universe who is loving and careful and faithful and kind to his people. So there's a misunderstanding of sin. There's also a distrust of the gospel. But there are also different ways to look at mourning in the scripture. So there are certain kinds of mourning that we all can experience here. And the first one, you, you have this in your outline. There's a, there's a guilty form of mourning, or there's guilty mourning. For those who attempt evil or give themselves over to the lust of flesh, oftentimes guilt comes over them to such a degree that it's clearly not a continued blessing in their own life. There are people in the Old Testament who were so evil and had so much evil passion that they physically became ill because of what they were doing to themselves or to other people. And this caused them to even become recluse in their mourning. They couldn't even go outside, you can imagine, because they know how much sin they're inflicting on their own or they're inflicting sin on other people, so they just hide away. There are situations like this today where young men are so caught up in things like Pornography or illicit practices that they weep as they spiritually destroy themselves, acknowledging that this is hurting their mind, hurting their heart, even hurting other people. And yet it brings more shame on them by trying to mourn in a way that is not godly or biblical. Blinded by their own sin, they understand the depravity that they're in, but they hurt themselves day and night, diluting their life by guilty mourning. Mourning that leads to reclusiveness isn't the good life. No one would say that you mourning so much that you hide away in the dark all day long. No one would say, blessed is that man or woman. No one would say, that's the good life. I want some of that. But our text is calling us to actually mourn and saying that's the good life, is having a heart of mourning. So when you think of mourning, you shouldn't think of the guilty mourning, but also this text isn't particularly talking about True, genuine mourning that you and I exhibit or go through all the time. There's a biblical category of mourning that I'm just going to call genuine mourning versus godly mourning, where it's just encountering the everyday sorrows of life. These mournings and sorrows show themselves throughout the Bible and even throughout your own lives, and all of us go through mourning or sorrow in one way or another, often, way more often than we'd ever want to admit. Mourning over circumstances is inevitable, and you should mourn over sad things. The loss of a parent or a spouse, Abraham mourned, Sarah, in Genesis 23. Maybe the the failure of an opportunity that came on your horizon, feeling like a loser, was actually what led Paul to write to Timothy in reaching out and saying, I remember your tears, even in this, what you feel is a missed opportunity. Feeling spiritually lost or separated from God was how the psalmist mourned where he said, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, meaning this person in mourning is not even eating or drinking because of the sickness and sadness that is coming out for him. Jeremiah mourned the coming judgment that was coming for Israel. A father in Mark 9 was mourning the demon-possessed son that he had, begging Jesus to help him. Paul prayed and mourned within his prayer for those people of Ephesus because of the spiritual battles they were enduring. And Jesus even wept when Lazarus had died and when he saw the sinfulness that was overshadowing, overshadowing the place of Jerusalem. So mourning is a real thing. It's just a part of our lives, and it's something that we shouldn't ignore. We shouldn't try to stuff away. If you've ever looked at a baby try to not cry, it actually even looks more pitiful than it already is. They're trying to stuff away the emotions, and it's okay to mourn. All of these cases in the, Bible, in the Bible's format just show us that mourning is a part of life. Mourning can be good. Mourning acknowledges the sadness that this fallen world represents. It has a longing for the Lord to return. And it's the good expression of the need for God's help in the midst of catastrophe or sadness. It's okay when catastrophe happens to sit and mourn. But that's not what Jesus was teaching here. Happy or blessed aren't those who go about their day mourning the loss of this or that or missing out on an opportunity. No one would look at the morning life though it's normal and though it's good to do, and no one would look at that and say, I want a part of that. I want to join that. I want to know who you're following. So what is Jesus talking about here when he says, Blessed are those who mourn? None of us would hear that and go, Oh, that makes sense. So what is Jesus talking about when it comes to mourning? Well there's a third category of mourning I'm going to call godly mourning. Godly mourning is mourning your sin. He says it's good to mourn. You're a blessed person to mourn, not your circumstances, but your own sin, because this brings you comfort. So godly mourning, mourning your sin, is the issue here, and it's good. Paul gives us the reasoning for what this looks like. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, for godly grief produces repentance. Think of that. The state of being in grief, the state in being in Mourning actually produces repentance that leads us to salvation without regret, whereas worldly gr- grief produces death. So I'll read that again. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So godly mourning or godly sorrow, not the world's circumstances, brings about repentance, and that's good. Repentance leads to salvation. Repentance is actually a great thing to do. It's it's not only necessary. Jesus says that it's necessary to repent. Oftentimes it seems so overbearing to repent, doesn't it? It seems like it's something we can't do. It seems so daunting or it seems so miserable to go through it all the way, but it's incredibly freeing. Bringing yourself to the Lord and mourning over your sins is an incredibly freeing act of you in worship. Just like admitting that you are not who you know you ought to be, it's just nice to acknowledge that at least we're on the same level here. And what godly mourning does is it brings you to the foot of the throne and you acknowledge to Jesus that you have done something you shouldn't have done and you know better. And repenting or godly mourning isn't just a one-time thing. Martin Luther says very famously, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ will the entire life of believers to be one of Repentance. Think about that. The description of your life, you could put this on your tombstone. Here lies someone who his whole life was defined by repentance. Jesus says that you're happy or you're blessed or you're fulfilled if you mourn your sin. Mourning is such an interesting word here in its own connotation, its own connection to the other parts of the test. What mourning is as a word is it signifies a deep, heartfelt grief. Usually, it'd be used for working through death, trying to reconcile what death would mean to a household or to a friendship or to a business, working through that. That's the kind of activity that you're going through when you're mourning. Mourning your sin is a deep, heartfelt grief towards the Lord. It carries the idea of deep inner pain, recognizing of of what my sin is against a holy God, But also we see, or we'll see in a little bit, of how that acknowledgement actually makes the comfort that God brings in His forgiveness all the more bright. That's the mourning over your sin. That's what it should feel like, deep inner pain. Seeing the assault against God that sin brings should bring you grief. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world that He created, rebelling against Him by living without reference to Him, not being or not being or doing what he requires in his law, ultimately resulting in our very death or in the consequences of broken relationships or broken friendships or even a broken state of worship. When we sin, it is good and grace-giving to be aware of that sin and to acknowledge that to the Lord. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who acknowledge that they're not God and that they have not done as God would do and that they need God in their lives. When we sin, it's a good and grace-giving thing to be made aware of this. John Owen says that we should hate our own sin. And he goes on to say we should actually not just hate our own sin, but we should put our sin to death. We should bury it. He asks the question, do you mortify your sin? Do you acknowledge what it is and do you mortify your sin? Do you make it your daily work? Cease not a day from this work to be killing sin. And he says that you should be doing this because you should be killing your own sin, you should be mortifying your own sin, or else it will be killing you. If we don't mourn our own sin, if we don't confess our own sin, if we don't repent of our own sin, it just keeps building up like a fortress against us, or like an avalanche that is coming towards us. This is why the happy man is mourning his sin. Because the follower of Jesus, the happy man, is actually placing himself on Jesus' side and actually going at war against that sin. That's what it looks like to fight sin. It's actually going at war against those evil thoughts or evil actions or you know, just the things that make you you that may not be appropriate. You're actually wanting to turn from that, but you're not just turning from it. You're actually placing yourself on Jesus' side and now going against something that he calls evil. And the holy righteousness of God actually promises to do away with all evil. And so mourning your sin is really putting yourself on the good side of life. It puts yourself on the happy side of life. This is godly mourning, seeing my own sin, mourning it, acknowledging its affront and goodness to God and taking it to the Lord in confession and towards repentance. That's what mourning is. There's godly mourning, there's honest and genuine mourning, there's ungodly mourning, But here, our text actually shows us not only or not only tells us to do mourning or to practice mourning or to mourn your own sin, but actually shows us the results of mourning your own sin. How is a happy man a mourning man? How is a mourning man a happy man? Why does Jesus say this? Well, he tells us the result. The result of godly mourning, of mourning your sin, is comfort. Heavenly comfort. Comfort from Jesus the Son himself. Think about that they shall be comforted those who mourn you're comforted by god from god in your mourning now they in our text is an emphatic pronoun another way to write it would be they alone or they only they only shall be comforted meaning there's a promise thereof if you mourn your sin you will be comforted christian i don't know if there's anything more comforting than that great news We're not just aimlessly praying. We're not just aimlessly singing songs. We're not just aimlessly fighting sin with other people. We are being comforted by God in mourning our own sin. When we mourn, we mourn to God about our sin. We confess our sin, turning to him, and we turn to the one who's the redeemer, who's the forgiver, who removes sin from our account, and he brings us great comfort. What a Christian looks like is a comforted person, both a mourning person, but also a Christian is one who should just openly exude that he has been comforted by the God of the universe himself because of the forgiveness that has been given to us by Jesus on the cross. I want you, there are a couple of ways that I think this gives us the results of mourning you have in there listed in your, in your bulletin, your sermon outline. Uh, remember the comfort that you first felt when you knew, when you had placed your trust in Jesus, when you knew that you had been forgiven of your sins. Remind yourself of the overwhelming comfort that that brought you in your life when you gave up on your own way of living and just gave yourself fully over to him. If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 55. So turn to Isaiah, chapter 55. If you're unused to the Bible, uh, it's just to the left. Keep going about several hundred pages. Isaiah, chapter 55. Here I want you to see what is promised to us when we place our trust in Jesus and how we are to be comforted by Him. Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 6 and going through verse 7, it says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Friend, do you remember the the comfort that God gives you in saving you from your sins. Turn over a little bit to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61, just a couple of verses at the beginning of that chapter. Isaiah 61, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives, in the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. That's the promise that we have in Isaiah and what is so incredible and so bold of what Jesus does. You don't have to turn there, but if you look at Luke chapter four, Jesus goes into his hometown of Nazareth and he goes to the synagogue and as an invited Uh, As an invited invited preacher, he'd be allowed to give the sermon. And he takes the scroll, he opens it to that very place that we just read from in Isaiah. He reads from that, and then he sits down, and then he says there in Luke chapter 4, verse 20, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing meaning all of the promise of what the Messiah was supposed to be to his people, he preached it, he read it, and he sat down and he said, it's being fulfilled by just me being here. The comfort that Jesus brings in the forgiveness of sins to those who mourn their sin is an incredible comfort. So think often, Christian, back to that time when you first felt the comfort of God. But also there's the present comfort that you have even now in your life. There's this huge tension in a Christian's life, of acknowledging their sin, but wondering why they still act the way they do. Meaning, why do I keep on sinning? What Paul shows us in the book of Romans chapter 12 is the everyday life of a Christian who is fighting sin, who hates sin, who mourns sin. Now, some people think that in this format of the book of Romans, Paul was actually talking about himself long ago, and then by the time he gets to chapter 8, then he's cleaned up, and now he's talking about his present life. I don't don't think that's the case. I think what we see here in chapter 7 is the almost internal spiritual battle royale that Paul goes through on a regular basis. If you've turned there in Romans chapter 7, you don't have to because I'm going to read it, but Romans chapter 7 verse 15, he says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. How many of us could say that on a regular basis, right? We know what we shouldn't do. We still do it. And I hate what I'm doing. And I want to overcome the sin, yet I still sin. In other words, righteousness and sin are fighting against each other. He goes on in verse 17, but sin that dwells within me. And he goes on to talk about it in verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. You just see the honest emotion that Paul has there, that I am still a sinner, I know that God has forgiven me, and I'm going to fight against sin. I'm going to mourn my sin because I know it's an affront to Jesus himself, and we know that Paul would have kept on sinning and being a sinful person until he was in the presence of Jesus, fully glorified and adopted. In other words, righteousness and sin are fat, fighting against each other, which is why he says, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He is awaiting the moment where he will never have a sinful inkling in his body. And this is the way of life with him. It wasn't just a one-time deal where you check the box of Jesus is the Lord of your life, but it's the everyday practice of mourning your sin. And what Jesus is saying is that's what a happy man looks like. He's fighting against evil. He's fighting against wrongness. He's fighting against sinfulness. You are fulfilling your life when you are mourning your sin. That's what Jesus is teaching us in this text. But it's not just a past comfort that we have that Jesus has forgiven us. It's not just a present comfort that we can feel, knowing that if we are fighting sin, then we're in good company, but also there is a future comfort. Turn over to the book of Revelation in chapter 7. There is a future comfort that, gives, that is given to us as we mourn. We see this incredible apocalyptic picture in the book of Revelation chapter 7. Book of Revelation chapter 7, to set the setting, is in verse 9 of Revelation 7. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with loud voice, with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And if you go down to verse 16 and 17, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The same action verb there is used in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 in our text. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because of this future hope where God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The mourning that you and I go through in mourning our sin That will be over at some point when we are in the presence of God Almighty, people from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. What a picture that will be. That's the future comfort that comes to those who mourn their sin. As our mourning rises from the throne of God, His unsurpassed and matchless comfort descends to us by Christ who is in us, to us is given the God of all comfort, who is always ready to meet our need, admonishing, sympathizing, encouraging, and strengthening. He is comforting those who mourn their sin. Our triune God, think of it, our triune God is our comfort and our comforter. The happy life is to mourn sin because you are instantly reminded, but you are instantly reminded of the comfort that Jesus gives those who are forgiven. Now, there are different ways, I think, that you and I can grow in our own mourning. If we acknowledge that mourning our sin is a good thing, if we acknowledge that it was not only a good thing to us in the past, it's a great comfort to us in the present, and also there is a future time where we will be eternally comforted by God himself, there are ways that I think we can grow in our mourning, or measures of mourning, if you're using an outline, And there's just a couple of questions that I think that I would want to ask you. That if you find yourself, I actually don't mourn my sin that often, or I don't even know where to start, or I want to mourn my sin more. I would just ask you, are you being sensitive to the Spirit of God? Are you being sensitive to the Spirit of God in your life? God's Spirit is a protector of truth, a guider of grace and godliness, a guide to grace and godliness a revealer of Christ's majesty, are you seeking the Spirit's direction and wanting the will of God in your life? Are you being sensitive to how the Spirit is guiding you in your day-to-day life? If you are, you'll mourn your sin and follow the Lord's will. Think of it, if you are so attuned to the Spirit's work, who is pointing you to Jesus Himself, you're going to constantly be looking at Jesus, and that's going to make you want to mourn your sin. I think it's John Bunyan who says, if you want to grow in godliness, take one look at yourself and a thousand looks at Jesus. If you're being sensitive to the Spirit, He's going to point you to what is true and what is good. Second, are you studying God's Word? The very Word of God is Spirit-inspired, meaning it's God's intended very true word to us. He breathed it out. That's why we said it's God breath. He breathed it out. So often people hope to know the will of God and don't understand what they have in front of them. We, we actually know what God wants us to know. We have his very word. The word is a lamp. It's a path. It's a guide. It's a sword. It's a shield. It reveals what sin is so we know what we're supposed to mourn altogether. And as we mourn things, we'll be comforted. It demonstrates the position of the heart before God. It means sensitive to the Spirit. He's going to drive you to what is true, and we see that in the Word. So, if you want to grow in your practice of mourning, are you studying God's Word? Third, are you adoring God's ways? Being sensitive to the Spirit, studying God's Word, but also adoring God's ways. God has not made His work and will a mystery to you. Now, there are things mysterious about the Gospel. Being that, why would we ever be selected by God Himself? That's the mystery of the gospel. Why am I included? That's what all of us will want to ask when we actually see the Lord in heaven, won't we? Why am I here? But He hasn't made His will a mystery to us. Do you remember what He did for you on the cross? Do you meditate on that? Does that change the way you view your sin? Do you know that he intercedes for you and cares for the church even now? God's son loved his church more than anything else in the world. EMB, God actually loves this church more than anything else in the world. Does that change the way you adore him? Does that change the way you marvel at God's ways? Do you know and marvel at the future of God's people? The bright hope that the elect have before them rode in Majesty or in majestic brilliance before the throne of God, does this give you an idea of how you can adore God God's ways? You could just take a moment of your own time just acknowledging what He did for you, what He does for you, and what He will do, promises to do for you, and that could set a path on, "I have nothing else," or "I have nothing better to do with the rest of my day than to adore God because of His ways. And then lastly, do you pray for God's help in your morning? The last measure of mourning for you is to pray for help. Evaluate your prayer life. Now, some ways that you might teach a child to pray or you might teach a, a new Christian to pray is just using the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, where if you don't really know how to pray or if you need a grid to pray, you first A, you adore, and then C, you confess, T, you bring thanksgiving or you thank God, and then S, you bring supplications to God. Some people might just do more maybe than the others. I would just ask you to evaluate your prayer life. Is is confession just something you never do? Or you just say, and Lord, I confess my sins. Well, what sin? Mourn those sins. Put those sins to death. Fight against that evil in your heart. Pray for God's help. Evaluate today. Do you mourn your sin? Pray for God to help you with this. Remove the barrier of pride and Self-justification, go to the God of comfort and mourn your sin. Confess your sins to him. And then lastly, just in conclusion, there's a message that mourning actually brings to the universe that we get to partake in. There's a message that as we mourn, we are brought comfort. But there's this great message of hope that our mourning brings. The hope of the passage is for the one who is happy. You're blessed if you mourn. For you alone have the comfort from God that is eternal and unending and promises to be glorious. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I would just ask you, what is your hope in? If you don't think that you need to mourn anything, what does that mean that you actually have to trust in anything altogether? Are you just trusting in yourself? Are you just trusting in your marriage or in your relationships or in your work? Are you just trusting in things that, that promise to bring you comfort? But then I would take you back to one of those categories of mourning, just the genuine mourning. If you're placing your hope in any of those things, aren't you also constantly mourning the circumstances of life? And what the gospel brings to us is actually God's comfort because of our mourning, acknowledging that we, while well, we are not good enough to receive anything, yet in his kindness he graces us with new life. Though the world may cause you to think the opposite, Christ tells you, that the blessed life is the one who knows his sins and clings to the Savior. The blessed don't disregard sin and hope for the Savior, but they actually turn from their sins and remember the justification that Jesus proclaims. That's the message that is hammered home in this passage. It's a picture of the blessed life, a picture of the Christian, one who mourns their sin, one who confesses their need for the Savior. The message of happiness of The message of happiness by mourning shows us a picture of a man who is sorrowful over his sin, but hopeful in the steps toward godliness. The message that our mourning brings to the world is a serious man of faith, but not a miserable man of faith, because he is filled with God's saving work. He's filled with God's comfort. The message to the world of a mourning person is the sober-minded woman, but not a pouty person because in being sober-minded about their sin, they remember the joy that Jesus brings them. The message of mourning is an earnest man, but never a cold man, or a woman who melts when she thinks of the cross, knowing that in his place was the Son of God. A man who has solemn joy, holy joy, and is indeed like our Lord himself, groaning and weeping, yet for the joy that was set before him Enduring the cross and despising shame. That is the man who mourns. That's the outward message that our text encourages us to be. Recognizing the sin that is within, but also understanding that there is a great message of hope that goes to the ends of the earth. The message of the one who mourns is showing the world the comfort that has been brought to us by Christ's work. And I trust you see the joyful outcome when mourning meets sin the man who turns to the Savior and is continually comforted by the grace of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we are grateful that we can come to you and confess to you our sins, knowing that you are quick and able to forgive our sins. We recognize that this is given to us by the work and the love of Jesus on the cross. And so we pray that you would remind us of what we can do with our sin. We pray that you would remind us of what is brought to us when we mourn our sin. And we do pray that you would comfort us and bring us rest, knowing that you completed the work on the cross for your Son's glory and our good. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.